What we've seen in the last 10 years is a movement away from this idea of just merely school to schooling. This idea from a brick and mortar to this idea of a family choosing. And this cultural idea of a family being able to take back the power that was always locked in their home value for such a long time. More than 30,000 students across the country are using education savings account programs. Supporters say these programs give families the freedom to pursue education options best suited for their children's needs. Others say ESA siphoned dollars out of an already struggling public school system. But what exactly are ESAs? What do they mean for families and for education as a whole? And how can ESAs help families find the best learning environment for their children? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Robert Enlow to find out. Robert Enlow is the president and CEO of EdChoice. EdChoice is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that advocates for school choice. Prior to his work with EdChoice, Robert was an integral part of the Milton and Rose Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. Today, Robert joins me to discuss what families need to know about ESAs. Robert Enlow, boy, it is so good to have you on the show. Welcome to What I Want to Know. Thanks, Kevin. I really appreciate you having me. So we've known each other a long time, and, and I want to talk about, you know, EdChoice and, and the parent uh, empowerment movement, ESAs. But first, you know, because we know each other, I haven't really done research on you, and I decided I was going to do research on you. And so I found out that one of your favorite subjects was English literature. Yes, sir. And you had a favorite instructor. Uh, talk about that, because I just didn't know that you had that in you, my friend. Uh, so I was very lucky after going to public school. I got sent to a school out in Long Island, a boarding school out in Long Island. And there was a professor there named Russell Witherspoon. It was a a wonderful tall black man with these incredible tapered fingers that would just talk you through a story and mm -hmm. and and having literature taught by i mean i still get shakes thinking about uh atticus finch and the way he taught about that whole story or the way he taught a separate piece and all this it was uh russell witherspoon was a massive influence on my life and i really i often think about him he's i think now at exeter uh, but he was an amazing man, and I love literature. And one of my favorite poems or uh, poets is uh, Thomas Hardy, and he wrote a poem called Hap, which is a fantastic poem I encourage you to look at. Well, I will. And, and, and the reason why I was struck by that, Robert, you don't know that when I was at Wabash, my favorite professor, had some great professors in political science, was a professor named Robert Harvey, who was in his 80s at the time, and he taught a short story class that was mainly made up of seniors, and he offered it at two o'clock on Fridays for two hours, and no one missed the class. Wow. And uh, he would read short stories to us, and the, the, uh, at the end of the day, uh, our final exam was to write our own short story, and it was because of that experience that I realized I at least had a knack for writing. Mm -hmm. It's pretty powerful when you think about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, it's amazing. I think, I, I love literature. I wish all of our kids would know more literature, frankly. And, and I don't care if it's the classics or not the classics. I want them just to know more literature. Did, did that experience 
contribute your interest you're involved a little bit in politics you're involved obviously with milton friedman but did that experience help sort of guide your foray which became a career in education so getting sent to a boarding school in long island in the 19 in 1979 from indiana you might imagine what my nickname was uh (laughs) it was the hick from french lick obviously um (laughs) It was a shocking experience because it made me see that people were getting access to something amazing, but not everyone. And it struck me really early on that this just seemed patently unfair, right? And that we should not just by virtue of household income or housing have the access to this kind of schooling and these kind of teachers. And so from the beginning, I always wanted to start a boarding school for inner city kids. That was my dream. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad to see that SEED has done that. It struck me that we've got to do something to change how we deliver education because of that experience. And so I've become basically dedicated my life to trying to upend the nature of how families can access education. One of the uh, forerunners in this and, and visionary thought leaders was Milton Friedman, and you worked with him. Talk about that experience and how that impacted. Didn't even really know who Milton Friedman was. It was 1996, and and the president was a family friend, and and I get this job, and and I write a brochure, and the and 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 our president goes, Robert, you're going to meet Milton and Rose for dinner, and they're going to go over the brochure with you. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'm, I'm used to it. I'm a social worker. That's what I've been doing. You know, I can handle people. I get to uh, the meeting, and it took me like two seconds to feel really small because <laughs> of this guy's giant intellect. You know, his first comment to me, Kevin, was, son, I think you need an English language dictionary. And uh, <laughs> and at that point, my heart <laughs> fell. I thought I was getting fired. Uh, but it, it became a wonderful chance to get to know Dr. Friedman and, and, and his wife, Rose. And they were intellectual equals and partners. I don't know if you know this, but they were married and together longer than the average lifespan of a man. Wow. A long time. And Milton became someone who I, I was able to get to know, rely on. And, and to watch him sort of then turn around and say, I'll never forget the last speech he gave was at Alec in 2006 at, in San Francisco. I asked him to do it. And he just leached over to me and says, okay, now what, what do you want me to say, Robert? And at that point, I was like, okay, so I've been very blessed to be uh, with this amazing man and intellect and his wife, Rose. Based on your experience with them and then moving beyond as you work now as the CEO of EdChoice, you've been one of the nation's uh, foremost leaders in educational choice, educational freedom, parental choice, school choice. It's, it's been called different names over the years, but the basic thrust of it is parent empowerment, where parents are in a position to make sure they choose the right school that fits for their child or individual child or children. How have you seen the movement in EdChoice change over the last 10 years or so? So that's a great question, one that would take a little bit of a while to unpack. And Kevin, to be honest, I think you're a hero in this movement too. I mean, I got to know you first in D.C. when we were going through the D.C. scholarship bill fight, uh, and we didn't always agree on on the policy, but we always agreed to to be with each other and and fight the fight for families together, even when you guys were out trying to circle the building and and stop them from coming in, (laughs) which I loved. You know, the thing that guides me, and more and more, and I think we're getting back to this, Sue, the child is not the mere creature of the state. That was the 1925 ruling in Pierce versus Society of the Sisters. And I think 
parents are beginning to realize that. And so what's happened in, for me in the last 10 years, in 2011, when Indiana passed its big, huge voucher bill here with Governor Daniels, we called it the year of school choice because families were getting more access to schools. In 2021, when West Virginia passed its ESA program, which was nearly universal, we called it the year of educational choice because it wasn't just about families accessing a school. It was about families accessing an educational environment that they can personalize, whether that's one school, two schools, computers or, uh, or curriculum like they have at Stride, which is amazing. You know, this ability to customize. And this year we're calling it the, the year of universal choice because basically now one in seven families, because of what these things are education savings accounts, families can choose to customize their child's education. So what we've seen in the last 10 years is a movement away from this idea of just merely school to schooling, this idea from a brick and mortar to this idea of a family choosing, and this cultural idea of a family being able to take back the power that was uh, always locked in their home value for such a long time. Yeah, and I want to talk about education savings account, but before I do, you know, one of the big challenges uh, with the whole notion of educational choice and even the educational freedom associated with schooling or schools is, you know, institutional. The, the, you know, the school systems, uh, school leaders, school boards have always said that this is a challenge to our core structure of American public education. How would you respond to that? Because a lot of superintendents are listening. Should they be afraid of the educational choice movement? No, I think they are the forefront of the educational choice movement if they're done right. I have heard so many superintendents, particularly in rural areas, say, oh my God, if my families had more freedom, if I had more freedom from bureaucracy and from the constraints of what the state puts on me at the budget level, if I had the kind of freedom to do what you guys are thinking about with the education savings accounts for vouchers, we would be doing so much. And I think that's right. I think there's a lot of opportunity out there for traditional school districts. Now, look, traditional Traditional school districts, not teachers, have got some challenges that they got to deal with, right, as we all know. And one of those is the very structure of the way they're set up. When you're set up where something is free at the point of delivery, where you have to go, and, wh and when, you're, when you're forced to go to where they tell you to, it creates a little bit of a disincentive for families. Doesn't mean that the teachers aren't great. Doesn't mean the schools don't love their kids. It just means the way the structure set up sometimes is challenging. And so I think there's two opportunities here for school districts. One, they should embrace the idea of customization. They should do it better than anyone, and they can do it better than anyone because as school board leaders, they can do whatever they want, right? Right, basically, they have almost total power. And I think, too, they need to deal with the challenges just inherent in the structure that they have. Uh, but they're, gonna, they're doing it, I hope, in some places. And I believe that school choice and the idea of educational choice or educational freedom will help them do that better. That's certainly what the studies say. Yeah, and more and more school districts are engaged in what they call public school choice and building alternative and creative, innovative uh, schools or school settings or alternative settings that, that work for kids. Uh, but talk about education savings account. First of all, definitionally, because a lot of people, even in the early days of this, you know, approach, were trying to understand it. And you have a way of breaking things down in simplistic, easy to understand terms. So talk about what an education savings account is. What we think about when we think about education savings accounts is the government is setting aside money for your kids to educate your kids. That's super important, right? We do that for all schools, for your traditional schools, for your, if you're in a voucher program or if you're an ESA program, the, the government is setting aside money. 
And what happens with that is as a parent, you can either use that money if you're going to go to a traditional school, that money just gets sent to the traditional district. If you go to a charter school, that money gets sent to a charter school. Or if you go to a private school using a voucher, that money gets sent to a, a traditional private school. What an ESA does is it says, we're going to put that money into an account and let you as a parent go and customize. And it's going to allow you to say, you know what, I love this idea of this curriculum from uh, Stride, for example. Or I love to use the idea of math mathnasium for my math. Or I love to use this idea of in-person learning through going to all of the museums in America to learn about everything, right? So this idea of customization where parents have the power over each single dollar is very new and it's very different. So what we then say about ESAs, ESAs are government funded support for families that they can use to customize and personalize the delivery of education for their children. Here's why that's important, Kevin. I'm a special needs parent, let's say, which I actually was. Um, and my child can't thrive in a traditional environment. Uh, and in particular, can't thrive in any environment, charter or or private or public. But he really thrives by this wonderful therapy called horse equine therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, you would think to yourself, oh, my gosh, horse equine therapy, why should I pay for that? Except it's really known to work for, fam for children does. with special needs. It's really valuable. So this parent can go and use that, take their kid to that therapy, and then come home and have a tutor help that child with English. And this is the power of the ESA programs. It really does bring the power back directly into the hands of parents who get to be the ones who decide. What stops ESAs, as you described, this customization, which clearly is important for many families and many kids, but what stops it from being the wild, wild west? Great question. Uh, one of the reasons it stops it from being the wild, wild west is because it all has to be done through a digital wallet. Right, you can't just sort of throw money around. I mean, someone has to approve the expenditures. Someone has to expend the expenditures, right? And so, if you all do this digitally, right, it can't be used inappropriately if the safeguards are in place. So we know that because you're not spending money, you're not sending millions and millions of dollars into a fund that is used by a school or a district. You're actually putting money into a digital wallet that has safeguards that are actually probably safer than the way we spend money now in schools. Well, you know, the first ESA legislation was passed uh, almost 10, 11 years ago, and now we've seen an explosion of ESAs. Talk about where we are in terms of uh, the availability of ESAs and what it means in those states. Yeah, so let me just give you some numbers because I've been working on these numbers. So this is the total country numbers. As of May 12th of this year, there have been 104 bills in legislatures relating to education savings accounts, vouchers, tax credit scholarships, or refundable tax credits, right? So 104 bills. Of those bills, 87 of those bills were ESA bills. So ESAs are the kings of the world right now, right? Now, ESAs come in many different sizes, Kevin, right? So you have the Arizona ESA, which is very wide open. It allows families to choose from a wide array of different options, right? You have the Arkansas ESA, which is a universal ESA to be scaled up to everyone in the, ch in the state will be able to access this idea of customizing their kids. And they'll be able to use it for therapies, for curriculums, for tutoring, for schools. And then you have Iowa, which is an ESA sort of with restricted uses, right? It says, hey, we're going to give these families a customization ability, but it's really going to be for private school tuition and fees and a couple other things to start. So right now there have been uh, six states this year that have passed ESA bills or large broad voucher bills. 
uh, with North Carolina also on the cusp of passing one as well. What is the impact of ESA's education savings accounts on the following stakeholders? Um, one, uh, I'll talk about students, uh, two, parents and families, and three, the school system as a whole. Wow, great question. So we know from the data uh, about parents. So when students get the ability to choose, we know they tend to do slightly better on test scores uh, if you take the test. But what we really know is that they do better in later life outcomes. So they tend to graduate at higher rates. They tend to matriculate into college at higher rates. They tend to persist in college at higher rates. They tend to make better decisions with their lives. This is amazing student outcomes. They tend to be better civics. Uh, so for example, um, if you have a child who's receiving choice, the data shows that they're more tolerant of other people's opinions. They're more tolerant of other people's faith and police. This is something I think is a good thing in a pluralistic democratic society. Uh, as for parents, the data is very interesting on this. We, we do data at EdChoice about when parents choose, what do they do differently? What they tell us and what we found is that they report to us that they communicate with their teachers more. They communicate with their schools more. They get them more involved in their kids' homework and they actually vote more. So again, it's a positive democratizing effect. And then for schools in, in general and for society as a whole, when you look at schools, we know from the data beyond a shadow of a doubt that traditional schools in areas where there's lots of choice and lots of competition, they get better a lot faster, um, which makes a lot of sense uh, in this world. Uh, because when you have a system that is a monopoly, and I use that term intentionally in this podcast because I think it's important to discuss the oppressive nature of monopolies right and so and by monopoly you're talking about just the sort of traditional school district that is correct everyone is supposed to go to or to historically correct. Is and if to, you yeah. look at uh, well i would encourage your listeners to go and read the history of how we got to this system of k-12 education it didn't start in 1776 it didn't start in 1796 it didn't start in 1820 it started probably in like 1840 and then began to grow and the father of 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 the modern uh, public education system was a guy who was a pretty avowed he, he kind of thought that parents should be put in jail if you didn't force them to go to schools and, and public schools. And so th there was some history about our K-12 education system that I think people need to get educated on. And the reason I say oppressive monopoly is because we need to understand that systems get better when there's competition out there. Systems get better when families have more choices, right? Now, not universally better, not always better, but generally the environment's better. Uh, mm -hmm. And then society as a whole, look, Kevin, our studies have found millions and millions of dollars. And if, if I always say it this way, I have a kid in third grade in Indianapolis public schools where I live. He gets $15,000 all in to go to the traditional school. That's through federal, state, and local money. That same kid gets around eight or $9,000 to go to one of our charter schools. And that same kid gets $5,000 to go to get a voucher to go to a private school. Why did that kid end up being $10,000 less? What's wrong with that kid? Is something wrong with the kid or is something wrong with the way we fund and structure the system? I think it's patently unfair that we allow that. And I think it's really important to say that the idea of parental choice is a positive idea that will benefit almost every sector if you allow it to, to work. How will, how does it all get managed? I mean, we talked about the, the Wild West example um, as it relates to ESAs. Uh, but there are arguments that um, more is more when it comes to educational choice or educational freedom. Uh, 
But others say that in some jurisdictions, less is more. How do you balance that? Well, first of all, you have to trust parents, right? I mean, if you're going to trust them, I've always laughed about this in a sad way. Education is one of the few places it strikes me as we don't really consider the interest of and the power of the consumer, i.e. the parent, in determining what product we deliver and how we deliver it, right? It's very, very interesting. So the first thing I'd say about less is more or more is more is I think I would trust the parents and let them figure it out because I think they're going to be able to do it. I'm not sure that you need some sort of big bureaucratizing structure to solve a problem that I think families uh, can help solve for themselves, even those families who are often well less well off. You hear this a lot, Kevin. You've heard this for years, right? And I don't know how you handle it. I know how I handle it, but <laughs> it really annoys me. But when I hear people say, oh, you know, poor people, they're just so difficult. They don't know how to make good choices. First of all, that I have many things to say about that. But but the reality is, is that's just not true, right? The, the fact is, is poor families often, as Milton Friedman said, sacrifice wisely and disinterestedly in their children's future. And so we have to believe in families, right, as first and foremost. That's what I would say. What about the politics? Because all of this is shaped around the politics of education. You know, there's the influence of in the Democratic Party, the Teachers Union. But as you know, when it comes to the Republican Party, there's been the influence of rural legislators and, and the like that, that really they're trying to protect the institutions of uh, education, school districts, jobs. The largest employer for many rural counties are school systems. So it's an interesting kind of challenge in terms of having open-minded conversations. How, how do we deal with that? And I know COVID has helped shake things up, but that still remains one of the biggest challenges. It, it remains a huge challenge. And in fact, it remains a huge challenge now on the right side of the, the world as opposed to the left side of the world. Let's be honest about this. So yeah. EdChoice has been an organization that will work with any state. And obviously we've worked with more red states because more red states are interested in this. And we've been doing that for a number of years now. Uh, and it, it is true that more red states have passed school choice uh, than blue states. It is also true that more red states have opposed school choice uh, <laughs> than, than blue states, right? This year, for example, Georgia, Idaho, uh, and North Dakota, and possibly Texas have all killed school choice. You can't get more red than those states. Um, but they've killed the idea of school choice. So this idea that that school choice is only a red state is, is issue is is to me silly. I, I've been saying this, trying to quote my Milton Friedman, um, the idea that liberty is a Republican issue or the idea that liberty is a Democrat issue seems silly. The idea that liberty is a human issue. And if it's a human issue, then we have to work everywhere. So politics is real, though. So look, the reality of red states are that, that you have rural legislators who are, have been in place uh, with the largest school district, largest uh, employers in their districts for many years, and that's just a challenge. Or in a place like Texas, they have over, I think they have over 1,100 school districts. 1,100 school districts, think about that, right? Uh, my state has 292, and people think that's too many. Um, I mean, the reality is, is you have a lot of structural things that go on in the Republican Party, much less uh, in the Republican states. Now, that said, there are blue states that are starting to consider things like this, states like New Mexico, uh, states like uh, uh, I saw an effort in, in Washington State this year, right? Uh, now, is it going to go anywhere? Probably not. 
But the reality is, is you have to fight the fight for liberty for all, not liberty for some, not liberty that's red, not liberty that's blue, but liberty for everyone. And I think one way to do that is to have open and honest conversations where um, you can lower the volume and, and, and talk honestly. And as it relates to ESAs, what exactly is the overall benefit that you see for the community at large? Because this is one of the things that, you know, uh, opportunities you have to really deal with the misconceptions. So I love the way you just framed that in terms of how to have the volume go down. ESAs do that, and I'll tell you how. In the previous iterations of the idea of educational freedom, it was always about a building. It's always, it was always about school choice, right? And so it always pitted public schools versus a private school or charter schools versus a private school, or charter schools versus a public school. It always pitted one against the other. What education savings accounts do is basically allow policymakers and superintendents and school leaders to basically say, my focus is a parent. I'm coming alongside a parent, and they're doing what they want to do. Because I believe every parent in my school district, every parent where I work, every parent where I live, has the freedom and ability to choose. So I'm merely trying to come alongside and empower a family. And I think that's super important in terms of how you take the rhetoric down. We're here for family choice. We're not here for school choice. And I think that's a tremendously important way to go forward. Um, and that ultimately will benefit, I think, all of us. When, when you could see rural schools in Arizona benefiting from the ESA program, um, it's going to be, which we know is already happening, uh, or rural schools in Florida benefiting from the ESA program. This is a positive thing. And by rural schools, I mean public schools. Mm -hmm. And so, or publicly run schools. You know, I always say this, right? It, they're publicly funded and government run schools, right? Or, um, and so, and this is, I always make my joke, right? They're publicly funded, government run. Charter schools are publicly funded, independently run. Private schools right. can be publicly funded, privately run. Right. ESAs are publicly funded, parent run. And I think that's the difference. Now that leads to really the big question, um, and this is what I really want to know, Robert. Uh, how do you see ESAs impacting education in the future? And I say that recognizing that that transition that you alluded to, going from you know the focus on buildings and school choice, charter schools, and moving into the the, the purpose and of schooling and how those funds are applied. The fact that there are uh, 84 out of 107 bills around the country that are related to ESAs, they've become more and more popular. We're going to see more and more legislation. What will be the future impact overall? Well, that's a great question and one that will depend on a couple things. First of all, we need to be patient with the implementation of these bills because they're, they're a unique thing that no one has ever tried before, right? And so, I mean, the closest iteration you have for this is literally Ma Bell or the cell phone industry, right? Cell phone industry or the, or the airline deregulation. This is the closest iteration we have to that, and it took a while for those things to sort themselves out. So ESAs, we, as legislators and policymakers and advocates, we really need to be patient with the implementation, right? And make sure that we understand that we're not going to know everything right away and how to implement these things. Mm -hmm. Two, we need to implement these things with competence. And I use that word intentionally because I think there's a lot of folks out there that are saying we can implement this stuff using, you know, a, a one program off the shelf or another program off the shelf or another uh, typical government bureaucrat style. That's not the way it's going to work, right? We really need to make sure that these programs are implemented in a way that shows like 
we have Medicaid programs that are billions of dollars programs. We never have, you don't have tons of government entities around them, right? You have good government competent vendors, right? right? And that's what we need to make sure we have. So implementing it well through competence, giving ourselves a little patience, I think is one, that those two things, we do them right, then the future will be 100% customization, right? And, and ultimately what that means is school district central offices and purchasing will have to look a different way. Ultimately, I don't think schools will look all that different, but I think the way we purchase goods and services will look different, right? That, I think, is a big deal. And also, does that mean that the traditional public school district will still exist? I don't see why it can't exist. I just don't know why you'd have the central office stuff that we have in the yeah, same way, right? Yeah. To me, every single school and every single district becomes I, I its own. I guess I mean publicly run, run schools. Yeah, I think, well, at that point, the argument would be every school is a family-run school, right? And it's publicly funded, right? So that's the goal, right? Publicly funded family-run entities, right? Um, whether they're run by the government, which is fine. I actually say that this is the only argument I might have won with Milton Friedman. Um, when we were having a discussion about, you know, what the future of school choice looked like in a universal voucher program, he said, well, there wouldn't be no government schools. I said, but Milton, you said a marketplace has to have every entrance into the market. So that has to allow the government, right? Yes, and that's looked, the point I was getting at. And he looked at me and he said, yes, so long as it's truly a fair playing field, right? And, and I said, I agree with that, right? So if everyone is operating under the same exact amount of resources, the same exact rules, that would be great. Now, the challenge with that is our traditional schools will say, well, we, don't, we can't have schools like private or charter or independent schools that don't operate on our level playing field. And my argument back to that is that level playing field has been poor at best and not worked at all for the most part. So why do we want to actually have every school do that? Our goal isn't in school choice and educational choice to have all schools look the same. It's to actually have all families have access to all options. It's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. Robert Enlow, I thank you so much for joining us. And thanks again for coming on the show. This is What I Want to Know. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education. And write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.